Chapters 11 and 12 of The Girl from Malta by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 11. An Artistic Evening The Society for the Improvement of Art was one of the favorite fads of the day, and will no doubt hold its own till some newer fad comes to the front, and then it will fall to pieces. It was organized by three or four enthusiasts who said there was a great deal of latent artistic talent in England which needed development and they proposed to let everybody who thought he or she could draw have an exhibition once a year. Every picture sent in was hung on the walls of their saloon, and some queer things figured there. Unappreciated geniuses with the talents, as they thought of Michelangelo, sent in hideous productions, which were enough to send a painter of any knowledge whatever crazy. Such was the crudity of the drawing. Some of the pictures were done in a firm, precise manner, as if they were the productions of very young people, and finished by the governess. Others had a dashing, sketchy appearance, as if they had been done in half an hour, not an unlikely thing. But here and there were some really pretty sketches that were admired. Yet the whole effect of these walls disfigured in such a manner was depressing in the extreme. The fact was, the Society for the Improvement of Art was a collection of amiable idiots who made their mad project an excuse for having evenings when everybody who was anybody went. On this evening, therefore, the rooms were crowded with all sorts of queer people, some who thought themselves clever but were not, and tried to make up for their lack of brains by assuming extraordinary costumes. Others, who were dressed in the height of fashion, only came because everyone else was there. And critics, actors, artists, and literary men all jostled one another in the crowd, and laughed to scorn the feeble efforts of the society to find hidden talent. There was weak tea and thin bread and butter, and everybody, when they were not looking at the pictures, which was seldom, talked, scandaled, and abused their friends, so it was all very delightful and amusing. At least Monteith found it so as he leaned against the wall and listened to Foster's cynical comments on all who passed along, mostly friends of his own. But after all, what is the use of having friends if one can't abuse them? You see that bald-headed old chap there, said Signor Asmodeus Foster, who was about to unroof his friends' houses for the benefit of the Australian. The one with the gaunt female beside him. She was his daughter's governess and married him by force. She bullies the life out of him, and if he but look at another woman, a thing, by the way, the old scamp is very fond of doing, he catches it when he gets home. That pretty little woman in white is Lady Aspasia, who was not as good as she might be once. But now she's married and gives good dinners, so society doesn't rake up her little failures in the past. We are a very generous people when there's money in the question. That young dandy with the simper and the eyeglass is Bertie Hardup, who a year ago had not a shilling. His face was his fortune, and a mighty nice income it brought him, for he married Miss McNabb, the Scotch heiress, who has red hair and a long pedigree. He doesn't care a fig about her, and keeps Musidora of the frivolity out of McNabb's money. By Jove, my dear fellow, all these people have their skeletons, and if they could only become visible, you'd see every one of them attended by a bony figure like those in the Dance of Death. Rather a ghastly assemblage, said Ronald absently. Not at all, replied his companion. Bless you, we love our skeletons, and in the middle of the night take them out and discuss our private affairs with them. Then we lock them up in the little dark cupboards again, and only hear the faint rattle of their bones during the day. Ronald laughed. You are cynical. 
The fault of the world, my dear boy. I would like to go through life keeping all my youthful illusions, but the world won't let me. It has destroyed all my dreams of honor and honesty one by one till poof. It has made me as disbelieving as St. Thomas. What strange people are here, said Ronald, looking at the restless crowd. Yes, the dresses are eccentric, are they not? But that is part of our trade in London. If one cannot be famous, well, the greatest idiot can make himself conspicuous. Let us walk through the rooms to find Mrs. Taunton, or we'll miss her. Ronald, nothing loath, went off with his mentor, and could not help laughing at the curiously dressed people he saw. One lady was arrayed in black velvet trimmed with silver, and looked like a first-class coffin, while another in white with large red rosettes down the front of her dress had such square shoulders that she resembled nothing so much as a chest of drawers. Here and there there were some pretty girls, but the general impression Ronald had was disappointment at the appearance of the ladies. "'They're so deucedly ugly,' he said in disgust. "'Yes, they can't make their faces up properly,' observed Foster, putting on his eyeglass. "'They're all alike very badly painted pictures. But that's a pretty woman over there.' "'Yes, by gad, she is,' replied Ronald critically. "'Who is she?' "'The lady we are in search of.' Mrs. Taunton, come, and I'll introduce you to her. So Foster, followed by Ronald, pushed his way through the crowd towards Mrs. Taunton, who was standing with her husband, a tall, round-shouldered man to whom she was talking in a vivacious manner. A very charming lady she was, small, fair-haired, and wonderfully bright and quick in her conversation and actions. Her face was wreathed with smiles, but during a pause in the conversation it was in repose for a moment and then Ronald detected a shade of latent melancholy, which reminded him somewhat of the sombre expression of his dead friend's face. "'How do you do, Mrs. Taunton?' said Foster when he reached her side. "'I have not seen you for at least—let me see—a hundred years.' "'If that is the case,' replied the little lady, laughing, "'you must have the gift of immortality, for you don't look a day older.' "'Nor you a minute,' said Foster with a bow." Permit me to introduce you to my friend, Mr. Monteith. He is come from the wilds of Australia to see if civilization is an improvement on savagery. Welcome to London, Mr. Monteith, said Mrs. Taunton, putting out her hand with a sunny smile. I hope we shall be able to make your stay pleasant. I'm sure of that, answered Ronald heartily. In such company it would be foolish not to enjoy myself. What, they know how to make compliments in Australia? when they have a worthy object, with a bow. Another. Really, Mr. Monteith, you are a Sir Charles Grandison. I hope not, broke in Foster, who had been talking to Mr. Taunton. He was a prig, wouldn't be tolerated nowadays. But then, shrugging his shoulders, how could you expect a linen draper to conceive a gentleman? It would be easier to make a silk purse out of sow's ear. Poor Richardson! said the lady with an amused look. How severe you are on him! Mr. Monteith, pardon my rudeness, let me introduce you to my husband. The artist bowed and shook Ronald by the hand, but said nothing. He was a man of few words, and so left his wife to do most of the talking, a task to which he was fully equal. Now then, said Mrs. Taunton, when the introduction had been effected, Mr. Foster, you can talk art, law, and scandal to my husband, while Mr. Monteith escorts me through the room in order to improve his mind. 
Ronald, of course, was delighted, and they strolled off, leaving the lawyer in deep conversation with the artist over a divorce case, which was then being published in extenso in the newspapers. What charming conversationalists some women are! They are as happy in their talk as in their letter-writing, and Mrs. Taunton was a most delightful Cicerone, with all Foster's knowledge and wit, but without his cynicism. Cynicism, like garlic, should only be used in moderation, and Ronald found Mrs. Taunton's bright, rapid talk rather a relief after the pessimistic views of his friend the lawyer. The lady seemed to know everyone, stopped every now and then to talk to people, and after leaving them kept up a running fire of conversation about their oddities which amused the Australian very much. "'How you do seize on people's weak points,' he said, laughing. "'Of course,' she replied. "'I'm a woman and have the instinct of the sex.' "'Likewise the charms. "'Mr. Monteith, I cannot allow you to pay me any more compliments tonight. "'But you may call tomorrow at four if you like, "'and I shall be prepared for your gallantry.' "'I should like it above all things,' he said seriously. "'Why, how grave your face is. "'I shall have to call you the knight of the rueful countenance. "'Is anything the matter?' "'I don't know. There might be.' "'What an ambiguous reply,' she said, glancing at him curiously. Are you a spiritualist? Have you had an intimation that all is not right in the other worlds? Her flippancy displeased him, knowing the importance of the matter in question. Mrs. Taunton, he said gravely, looking down at the little figure from his tall height, I was introduced to you for a purpose, and I am going to take a liberty. Mrs. Taunton looked a little frightened and wondered if her good-looking cavalier were mad. He guessed her thoughts. Don't be afraid. I am in my senses. Then he must be in love with me, thought Mrs. Taunton, in dismay at this eccentric young man. But his next remark caused her to alter her mind. You have a brother, he said abruptly. Yes, she replied, rather puzzled. I have one brother. I think he is out in Australia. Why? A sudden light breaking in on her. Have you met him? I think so. What is he doing? she asked eagerly. Ronald parried the question. I don't know, he replied, but I'll tell you all about him tomorrow. Is he ill or in trouble? she said quickly. Please tell me, because I am very, very fond of him. Mrs. Taunton, he said quietly, I am come here for a purpose. Which concerns my brother. Yes, believe me, I do not ask out of idle curiosity, but will you answer my questions? Mrs. Taunton thought a moment. It's all so curious, she said nervously. But Mr. Foster, who introduced you, is an old friend of mine. After a pause. Yes, I will answer your questions. He led her to a seat and took one beside her, then began to talk. Your brother's name is Leopold Verscoyle? Yes. He was married in Malta seven years ago. He was. And a year afterwards separated from his wife. He did. And then, hesitatingly, Oh, do not be afraid, she said coldly. He fell in love with another woman, and there was a divorce case. Verscoyle versus Verscoyle and MacGregor. You seem to know all about it, replied the lady, a little astonished. He went to Australia with Miss MacGregor, and since then I've heard nothing about him. What became of them? He married her. Oh, drawing down the corners of her mouth. Then she is his wife now, I presume? No, she is dead. Dead? 
then my brother is coming back to England? That I cannot tell you till I call on you tomorrow. What do you want me to do? To show me your brother's portrait. Have you one? Yes, only one, taken just before he left for Malta. Good, then I will call tomorrow at four o'clock. And then, rising and taking Monteith's arm, I will tell you everything, he replied. About what? That depends on to-morrow. You are a most mysterious man, said Mrs. Taunton in a vexed tone as he took her back to her husband. You arouse my curiosity and then refuse to gratify it. But tell me at least one thing. Is my brother well? Ronald hesitated. He dared not tell her that her brother, if Venton indeed were her brother, was dead, so he equivocated. I think so, he replied hurriedly. Then I will wait for your promised revelation tomorrow. And with a smile she left him and went back to her husband who was still talking to Foster. Take me home, George, said Mrs. Taunton, touching her husband's arm. I am tired. Yes, you look pale, my dear, he answered, giving her his arm. We'd better go at once. Foster glanced keenly at her and then at Ronald, who, however, shook his head. Good night, Mr. Foster, said Mrs. Taunton, giving him her hand. You are to call on me tomorrow at four with Mr. Monteith. I will not fail, he replied with a smile, and taking her husband's arm she moved away and was soon lost among the crowd. When she disappeared, Gerald turned to the Australian quickly. Well? I asked her about her brother, said Monteith quietly, and her story corresponds in every particular with that of Venton. Then you think Verscoil is Venton? Yes, I think so but I will be certain tomorrow. Oh, in what way? Mrs. Taunton is going to show me her brother's portrait. And then? Well, observed Monteith, if it is Venton, as I suspect, I think it will be the beginning of the end. 12. The Missing Link What queer old places there are in Brockade Street! Why, the very name is suggestive of the stately times of the early Georges, and indeed, Brockade Street was a fashionable locality even earlier, when Queen Anne was ruling and Marlborough was winning his brilliant victories, and Duchess Sarah was alternately bullying and coaxing her weak-minded mistress. A dark, narrow street with tall houses of red brick on either side, innumerable windows and heavy-looking doors which had often opened to let out Belinda to her sedan chair or Sir Plume on the way to Wills to have a chat with Stern and Addison. Fancy Swift, with his dark, lowering face walking down this street with his thoughts fixed upon a possible bishopric, or Dick Steele, swaggering along in his rich dress, stopping to take off his hat to Lady Betty Modish, who looked archly at him through the window. And then, at night, when all the streets were in darkness, save for the Link Boys, poor lost Richard Savage wandering about in company with Samuel Johnson, even at that early age burly and contradictory. Ah, yes, great spirits were abroad in those stirring times, and Brockade Street could tell a few stories of interest had it a voice. But now the tide of fashion had rolled westward, and the street was left silent and lonely to think over its past glories. All those famous old houses with their broad oak staircases and large stately apartments were now used as lodging houses for decayed gentlefolk and city clerks found shelter in the rooms which had once re-echoed to the brilliant epigrams of Swift or the smooth utterances of Joseph Addison. There were also some artists to be found in the street, 
for they loved it for its old associations and the dead-world flavor which haunted all the houses, a perfume of past memories of the bows and bells of good Queen Anne's gay court. Among these was Mr. Taunton, who occupied a tall, gaunt, grim-looking mansion at the upper end, and though his merry little wife tried hard to persuade him to move to a more civilized locality, he steadily refused to exchange the dead glories of Brocade Street for the fashionable quarters of Kensington. So Mrs. Taunton did the best she could, and beautified the quaint oak-panelled rooms with rich tapestries, curious old china, and bizarre-looking brasses. She sat now in her drawing-room, waiting for Mr. Monteith and his friend, and wondering what could be the reason of their visit. The soft light of the day, somewhat subdued by the long curtains which draped the windows, stole into the room, and all the picturesque objects were seen in a kind of semi-twilight. Here, a tall column with the bust of a laughing manade in marble, looking white and still against a background of crimson plush, and there, a landscape picture on an easel with some silken drapery flung carelessly over it. Plenty of easy chairs, spingle-legged tables of Chippendale, cupboards of priceless china, great jars from the flowery land which could have hidden the forty thieves, and innumerable mirrors all over the walls interspersed with pictures both in oil and watercolors. Mrs. Taunton herself, in a tea-gown of some soft, clinging material, was flitting about here and there like a restless butterfly, now arranging some flowers with deft hands, and again touching the dainty tea-service of Sevres china which stood at the end of the room. "'I do wish those men would be punctual,' said Mrs. Taunton for the tenth time, as she stood at one of the long windows and looked down the dismal street. "'I feel so miserable being alone.' Her husband was up in his studio painting, so she sat down on the window-seat and, leaning her head on her hand, began to soliloquize. "'I wonder what that Mr. Monteith wants to tell me,' she said to herself. "'He must have some news of Leopold. I'm sure I hope so. It is years since I heard from him. And then he left such a lot of things with me. All those jewels which belonged to Mother. I hope there's nothing wrong. But I dare say it's all right.' "'Leopold could always look after himself. "'Ah!' as the rattle of wheels was heard. "'There they are!' and she left the window quickly "'as a hansom drove up to the door. "'In a few moments Mr. Monteith and Mr. Foster were announced, "'and Mrs. Taunton received them with a face wreathed in smiles "'far different from the melancholy countenance "'which had gazed out of the window a few moments since.' A wonderfully pretty woman she looked in her pale yellow tea-gown as she advanced to greet the young men with the polished charm of a thorough woman of the world. "'It's rather chilly today,' observed Monteith, when they were all comfortably seated and Mrs. Taunton was busy at the tea-table. "'Chilly,' echoed Mrs. Taunton. "'Oh, you don't know what cold weather is in London. Wait till you see a fog, a nice thick yellow fog, with the sun like a ball of red fire glaring through it. Then you'll say it's chilly.' "'Ugh!' said the Australian with a shudder. "'Your description is suggestive of the charnel house.' "'Monty longs for the blue skies of Australia,' said Foster with a laugh, as he received his cup of tea from his hostess. "'So would you,' retorted Ronald, "'if you had once been there. "'Life in Australia is like the prairie fever. "'One is always longing to be back again.' "'Perhaps that's the reason my brother stops out there so persistently.' said Mrs. Taunton, leaning back in her chair. The two gentlemen suddenly became grave, whereat the lady sat up again. "'What do you mean by all this mystery?' she asked impetuously. 
Last night Mr. Monteith roused my curiosity to the highest pitch about my brother and then refused to gratify it. Is anything wrong? Has Leopold run away with another man's wife, or found a gold mine, or committed a murder, or what? She tried to speak lightly, but there was a ring of anxiety in her tones. You promised to show me his portrait, said Monteith, suddenly looking up. Mrs. Taunton arose without a word and going to a distant table took up a photograph framed in purple plush which she placed in Monty's hands. Taken seven years ago, she said. Monty looked at the dark, handsome face of the portrait with a vague expression of sadness in his eyes and handed it to Foster with a sigh. It is Lionel Venton. Ah, said Foster with a long breath as he looked at it. I thought as much. "'What do you mean by calling my brother Lionel Venton?' asked Mrs. Taunton, quickly clasping her hands. "'That is—that is the name of the man that was—that was—murdered!' The last word came out almost in a shriek as she sprang to her feet. Monteith nodded sadly. "'Yes,' he replied gravely. "'Leopold Verscoil and Lionel Venton are the same.' "'Then he—my brother—is the man who was murdered on board the Neptune?' she asked in a whisper. Foster arose in alarm. Let me get you some water, he said, advancing towards her, but she waved him back. Was my brother the man? Monteith bowed. And you gave evidence at the inquest? He bowed again. Mrs. Taunton braced herself up with a mighty effort, her charming face looking pale and drawn with horror. She walked away a few steps, then suddenly wheeled round on the two men who were watching her intently. Who killed him? That is what we intend to find out, said Monteith slowly, and you must assist us. Mrs. Taunton sat down and, clasping her hands over her knee, sat staring at the Australian with a rigid face. The shadows were falling fast in the street outside, and through the gathering gloom of the room the two men could see the white, set face of this woman looking like that of a lost spirit. Do you know what grief is? she asked in a dull, hard voice. Do you know what it is to go about with a smile on your lips and a broken heart? No, of course you don't. You are men, and cannot feel pain as a woman can. I have lost two children, and it nearly broke my heart. My husband is wrapped up in his work, and does not care for me except as a useful ornament to his table. The only two children I had died when I most wanted their love and affection, and I thought my heart would break. Perhaps it did. But— I lived. Yes, I went about with a smiling face and talked gaily with my friends. They said I was heartless. God, if they only knew the nights of agony that succeeded to days of apparent joy. But I lived. Yes, and I still go about amusing myself, a maelstrom above but a hell below. This is another blow. I loved my brother dearly, though I had not seen him for years, and now he is dead. Murdered? By whom? You do not know. I do. What do you mean? asked Monty, starting to his feet. She sprang forward and caught his wrist. Did he not tell you the story of his life? How he was ruined by a woman? Elsie McGregor? No, she tried to save him. It is not her I mean. You know, his wife, his Maltese wife, Bianca Cottoner. Monteith fell back in his chair and covered his face with his hands. Heavens, was it all true, then? 
was the girl he loved the sister of a murderess? And yet, though it looked so black against her, where was the proof? He looked up suddenly. There is no proof, he began. Proof? she flashed out quickly. You want proof? I can supply it. And she ran quickly out of the room. What does she mean? asked Monteith. I know, said Foster sagaciously. She has gone for that paper. Impossible. I don't see what other proof she can have, said the barrister, shrugging his shoulders. It's impossible. It's impossible, I tell you, cried Monteith vehemently. His wife might have killed him, but she was not a Miss Cottoner. The evidence both of the divorce court and Mrs. Taunton says she was. But she cannot be the sister of Carmela. I cannot say there may be more Cottoner families than one in Malta. But still, Vesala's name being mixed up in it seems to point out that she might be. I won't believe it till I hear the truth from her own lips. You will ask her, then? No. That's a mistake. You'll only torture yourself until you get a satisfactory explanation. Monteith flung himself back in his chair with a low moan, his bright young face looking pinched and haggard in the dim light, and at this moment Mrs. Taunton entered the room carrying a desk in her hands. This is my brother's, she said, placing it on a table and turning to the young men. He sent it to me about a year ago and asked me to keep it for him, as he was going to South America and did not want to take it with him. He also sent the key, and I looked over the contents. They are principally letters. She flung back the lid of the box, and there were bundles of letters, yellow with age, tied up with red tape. There was also a portrait, a faded old portrait of a girl's face. Is this the Maltese wife? asked Foster, taking it up, whereon Monteith sprang to his feet and also looked to see if it resembled Carmela. Mrs. Taunton made a gesture of dissent. It is Elsie MacGregor. The young man looked curiously at that face, a quiet, patient face, with love and truth shining through the pure eyes, the face of the woman that had ruined her life to save Leopold Verscoil from himself. Foster laid it reverently down again amongst the old letters. She was a good woman, he said softly, and cynic as he was, he meant it. But the proof, the proof, said Monteith impatiently. Mrs. Taunton rapidly turned over the bundles of letters and drew from one packet a square slip of yellowish paper which she handed to Monteith in silence. He took it eagerly and read the contents. Only three lines. You have treated me shamefully and I will never forgive you for it. We women of the South can revenge ourselves and your life will pay the penalty of your falseness. There was no signature or date to this extraordinary document and the two men wondered at it for a minute then Foster looked up suddenly. How do you know this is from the wife? he asked sharply. Mrs. Taunton pointed to the letters. Of course I have not read them, she said coldly, but you will see the writing on the envelopes corresponds with that in the letter. And so it did in every particular. So Monteith and Foster both came to the conclusion that his wife must have killed Verscoil, seeing that she had threatened him thus, and the crime was committed at Malta where she lived. The proofs were so clear. What are you going to do? asked Mrs. Taunton impatiently. I have a detective in my employment called Julian Roper, said Monteith slowly, and if you give me this paper I will show it to him. Then he must go out to Valletta, find out where Mrs. Verscoil lives, and ascertain her movements on the night the crime was committed. 
and he must also get some of her writing, to see if it corresponds with this, said Foster, pointing to the paper. When will he start? asked Mrs. Taunton quickly. Tomorrow, by a P&O steamer, said Monteith, and we will hear all particulars from him in a fortnight. Very well, replied Mrs. Taunton quietly. You can take the paper and hunt that woman down, for she and none other killed my poor brother. Good-bye, gentlemen, I am going to lie down. And without another word she left the room and retired to her bedroom, where her overtaxed nerves gave way and she broke down utterly. She is a plucky woman, that, said Foster as they left the house and drove away. What do you think of it all? I think, said Monty thoughtfully, that the case looks very black against the former Mrs. Verscoil, but what I want to be certain of is her relationship to Carmela. You can find out by asking her. No, I will not, said the Australian doggedly. But Roper can find out in Valletta, and if it turn out to be so, I'll speak to Carmela about the crime and see what she knows. Suppose she proved the sister, Mrs. Verscoil, a murderess, will you give up, Carmela? No, he answered curtly. I don't see why the sins of the father should be visited on the children, nor that one woman should be punished for the crime of another. End of chapters 11 and 12